Hi, I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. And welcome to Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. Couldn't resist. I don't mind now. I really don't <laughs> mind. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us again this week. Yeah, thank you for joining us. If you were listening to last week's episode, you'll know we are about halfway through our competition for March. So we have a signed copy of the brilliant debut novel from David B. Lyons, Midday, uh, to give away to one lucky Patreon supporter at the end of the month. So to be in with a chance of winning this fantastic book, which I've read and can personally recommend, sign up to support the show via Patreon by Friday the 29th of March uh, the winner will be announced the very next day amazing and also obviously if you do decide you would like to support us which we are eternally grateful for anybody who supports us you do get goodies and stuff as well so even if you're not necessarily the lucky winner and we have said we might do some more competitions yeah I think we should do competitions yeah. all the time yeah we'll do you think I can month. sign up and try and win this no. book because I really want to no. <laughs> I was thinking this I think I might have put that you on Facebook you have to go on Amazon yeah buy yeah, it yeah I think I'll just buy it do you remember you guys used to take the piss out of me for how I said Amazon yeah you do that say works. it like a twat though so um, okay what's the other one you say weird Argos what do you say oh uh, maybe I say Argus you say Argus yeah. which I think is an old newspaper Anyway, um, my episode this week is actually going to be part one of a two-parter. Um, and when I told Mark what I was going to be covering, he had like a grin on his face. He was really excited. And I really hope that it's a case that sparks that sort of enthusiasm for other people as well. Um, has anybody seen much in the papers about the Manchester Canal Pusher? So I'm calling this episode the Manchester Canal Pusher Fact or Fiction, because Nobody knows if it's true or not. The reason I had a grin on my face as well is because I nearly covered mm. it. And we never really talk about the cases that we're covering uh, before we kind of meet to record them. So it would have been quite interesting if we'd have met. Oh my God, can you imagine we turn up yeah, and then... That wouldn't have really worked Also, well. my um, episode would have been better than yours. Of so. course, of course it would. <laughs> So according to reports, between 2008 and the current day, there have been over 80 deaths in the Manchester canals, with 28 of those deaths still classed as unsolved. I began looking into rumours of the Manchester Canal Pusher a few months ago, and I have gone down the rabbit hole with this episode. Um, the episode this week and next week, will either gonna, they're either going to be a collection of random short cases that are similar but unrelated, or this is going to be a two-parter about a serial killer, a serial killer that is still at large. And it's up to our listeners and to you to just decide for yourselves which do you think it is. I could have written this up to be one episode, but there is so much I wanted to put into the episodes that I didn't think it would be right to shorten the cases down to fit them in. And it feels important to me to ensure that the names of the men who have sadly lost their lives are not forgotten. So in this episode, I'm going to introduce the rumours and where they've stemmed from. We'll look at a couple of cases from the series of deaths. And then in next week's episode, we're going to look at some more cases, which again, these may or may not be linked. It's up to you as the listeners to decide. And then we're going to look in a bit more detail about the responses from the police, the public, and what's going to be done in Manchester and what is being done in Manchester to try and reduce the number of deaths that are occurring. Honestly, this case has stuck with me since I first sort of heard about it and seen some rumours and it's been months and then when I started writing this I just I couldn't stop there was just so much that I wanted to put into this and this has been going on for many years and I only came across it probably a year ago and maybe that's because I don't live in Manchester but you would think that it would make national news mm -hmm. so I find it weird we both as 
avid fans of true crime. Mm-hmm. I hate using that term, but we have a you know fascination with true crime. We'd not really heard of it until quite recently. Yeah. And we never discussed it together. No, which is weird. <laughs> so to set the scene, the Manchester Ship Canal links Manchester to the Irish Sea. The canal goes through the city of Manchester, which is the third most visited city in the UK. It's famous for music, culture, architecture and loads more things like sports and engineering too. In 2017, the population was 545,500 people. It's also really well known for its football teams. I always think of the word canal as like a small river or stream, but it's really not like that at all. It's huge. Bridges for the M6 and the M60 go over it. It's about 36 miles long and contains several locks along the way. The locks have sets where one is big enough for ocean ships and the smaller lock is available for small boats. The rise of the water at each lock is roughly 15 feet, so over four and a half metres. It was first made to bring things through for the Industrial Revolution, so you can then imagine just how vast it really is. So whilst it may seem shocking that there have been 80 well, over 80 deaths in this canal, when you look at the sheer size and depth of the body of water, it does become a little bit more understandable. This isn't some little river in a village that over 80 people have drowned in. Yeah, I think it's good to provide that context. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at a population of over half a million. We're looking at a stretch of water that spans 30-odd miles. So, Yeah. yeah, it sounds dramatic when you say 80 deaths in Manchester's canals, but we're looking at quite a big area here. However, I do think that over 80 deaths is dramatic. And my personal feeling is there is something going on here. I I find that that is a lot and that is... It's just too much of a coincidence. And I... Again, I'm probably not sort of saying it right, but I love the idea of this. I really don't mean it like that, but what what you're looking at here is a motiveless murderer, mm-hmm. which we covered in the Stuart Ludlam episode. Yeah. And that, that motiveless murderer, that is a new breed of murderer for our time. Mm-hmm. And it's a particularly fascinating concept. It and really is. This really feeds into that theory. Absolutely. So back in 2014, a freedom of information request was made that asked for the number of deaths along the miles of towpath because there had been speculation every time a body was pulled out of the canal around Manchester city centre for quite a while at this point. For some, it was a bit of a joke and then for others, the deaths were more sinister and something to worry about. This is when the Twitter hashtag, hashtag the pusher became popular and there are some other hashtags as well and I've seen similar sort of things. The Daily Star on Sunday was the first to report on the story on January the 11th, 2015, using freedom of information legislation to report that 61 bodies had been pulled from Manchester's waterways in six years. The article in the Daily Star titled Manchester's Killer Canals cited 61 deaths over the past six years and featured a quote from psychologist Professor Craig Jackson, who said, perhaps we are talking about a canal killer. The canals, he said, were popular dumping sites for bodies. Greater Manchester Police issued the first of many denials, saying it had been established that there were no links between the deaths. The number of deaths reported varies from newspaper to newspaper. Some started off with 76, this grew to 80, and then 86 deaths across multiple different newspapers, and people have been reported as potential victims as recently as 2018, when a man was attacked one night but was lucky to survive to tell the tale. And I'll actually be discussing his story towards the end of today's episode. So I managed to discover that the correct figure is that there have been 85 deaths. 
And of the 85 victims, 72 of them were men, which really does add to the idea that these deaths are linked in some way. That is a huge percentage of the people who've died in these canals. When you think that it would be women who are more vulnerable Mm -hmm. walking along a canal. Absolutely. Yeah. Professor Elizabeth Yardley, a criminologist who is also a colleague of Professor Jackson at Birmingham City University, has been quoted as saying, People enjoy consuming stories like these. There does seem to be this insatiable appetite for real-life serial killers. She's basically talking about you there, Mark. She is, really, Mm -hmm. yeah. One possible cause, she says, is the apparent mystery that still surrounds a number of the deaths. Firm findings were made in 44 cases following inquests, but coroners recorded open verdicts in the remaining 28 deaths, which means a cause of death cannot be established and doubt remains about how the death came about. Again, I wanted to just clarify though, cause of death might not be registered for a number of reasons and they can be incredibly mundane. So for example, the fact that the body's been in the water for so long, this can disguise evidence and disguise things that they could look for um precise scientific explanations cannot be established especially when water's involved and there can just be uncertainty around how someone ended up in the river which then means that they can't conclusively give a verdict so they can record open verdicts because they could say well yes this person has most likely died from drowning but Mm -hmm. really was that as a result of suicide were they pushed was it a murder was it an accident so of course they're not going to be able to kind of say so it would be an open verdict in that case if they can't say suicide accident murder it's open exactly and i think that's the thing there is this mystery around the death but What leads up to it is sometimes what seems more shocking and more worrying. Greater Manchester Police did then review all of the cases. They came to the same conclusion that they had arrived at originally and they said that there was no evidence of a serial killer at work on the waterways of Greater Manchester. Professor Jackson continued to stand by his claims and even said that he had been contacted by concerned relatives of potential victims. Following a meeting that that the professor and Greater Manchester officials at the top had, it was released by the police that Professor Jackson claimed to have been misrepresented and had had a change of heart. Although he appears to have told the police that he's changed his mind, Professor Jackson has not said anything publicly to counter his original claims. He's just stayed silent since then. That's weird though, isn't it? Hmm. So there was a Channel 4 documentary in 2016 that investigated this and the relatives of many of the victims are convinced that their loved ones were killed but the police continue to deny that there is a serial murderer on the loose and I'm going to discuss the documentary a little more in detail next week's episode. Now you know me, I like a conspiracy. Don't we all? Yeah, and I like a serial killer story. It's like I was taking the mick out of you, but... You're more keen on serial killer stories than me. And I don't believe in coincidences. I'm not the sort of person who believes in that. So I think there is more to this. My personal gut feeling is that there is more to this. However, I do understand that other people don't feel this way. And a lot of the evidence does point to it just being weird coincidences so i'm really going to try with this episode and next week's episode to be as impartial as possible i was up until that point i was going to say it's going to be a bit like the david kelly (laughs) where we we didn't really know what happened to him so we kind of explored some theories but i would say this will be similar but i would definitely wasn't impartial yeah you weren't impartial with him i was kind of like yeah this is murder and 
Recently on our Facebook group, um, Emma Skillen shared a post about something similar that's been happening in America. I cannot remember for the life of me whereabouts it was. So perhaps it does show that actually when you have a large body of water, you're going to have something that perhaps could be linked. And there may be other opportunities if people did Freedom of Information Acts requests on things that actually more comes out. But for now, this is the key one that we can hear about. I do agree. Yeah, I think you might find patterns if if we did a freedom of information request on Birmingham City Council. They've got a big canal yeah. network to kind of compare and contrast. However, on the flip side, this all came about because people were already talking about hashtag the pusher when they were discussing this on social media. Yeah. So it was already something that people were worried about. I've decided to present to you the cases that seem particularly worrying to me um, and that seem to be linked in some way. But as I said, however, there are plenty of other cases that were cut and dried cases where the police had exactly what information, what had happened to the person and that the cases were closed off. Um, So there were over 50 deaths which have been classed as being solved or put down as tragic accidents. But even when they've been put down as a tragic accident, it doesn't mean that the families are happy with that. At the end of next week's episode, I'm going to go into more detail about how the authorities have responded to the claims. And I felt like these episodes were quite a positive way to ensure that the names of these people are not forgotten because their families are still trying to find out what happened to them. And I think it's important that we help them to continue that. Yeah, of course. Someone might listen to this and hear something or remember something. And again, I find it really weird that this hasn't um garnered na- national kind of attention mm. really it's kind of i'm sure it's quite big in manchester but um yeah i'd not really heard of it i think the channel 4 documentary was quite a turning point because that was obviously on national tv and there's quite a few youtube videos so if you are looking at it perhaps you'd find more information but it's not something that you hear about all the time but then also i imagine that's because the press don't want to cause mass hysteria about something that the police are saying definitively has not happened. 22-year-old Leeds University graduate Chris Brani went to a Stone Roses concert with his friends on the 29th of June 2012 at Heaton Park. Ian Brown was actually the uncle of one of the guys in the group of Chris's friends, so this friend had managed to get the large group VIP tickets and it sounds like they had an amazing time. The gig was really busy Um, And it seems like from what his friends have all talked about, the gig was amazing. Having those VIP tickets was just incredible. Shortly before the end of the gig at about 11.30pm, Chris realised that he had lost his phone. He tried to leave the park with his friend Mark, but in the huge crowds they became separated. When Chris didn't return home on the Saturday, his family figured he'd probably stayed with a friend. After all, he was a 22-year-old lad who'd been out with friends. He was a sociable guy, and I really don't think that if I was his parents, I'd have been overly bothered either. He, he may have done that before as well. Yeah, we know. they're young lads. They probably hang out at each other's houses all the time. However, he wasn't answering his phone, and by the Sunday, when he hadn't returned, his family did contact the police and reported him missing. Chris's parents, Jane and Stuart, appealed for help from the public and asked if anybody knew anything that they should contact the police. The police revealed that they had a number of leads that they were pursuing, including sightings of him near to the Maccabee Sports Centre and the fact that they believed his missing phone was somewhere in Edinburgh. Detective Inspector Debbie Oakes said to the press, We now have a number of leads that we are pursuing, and while we cannot say for sure where Chris went after he was seen by his friends, 
A picture is emerging of a young man who was lost, separated from his friends and trying to make his way home. She also referred to the missing mobile phone, saying, We have also now had an indication that Chris's phone may be in Edinburgh. This is the phone that Chris was trying to find when he went missing. I do not want the public to jump to any conclusions as to the significance of this. At this stage, all indications suggest that someone else now has this phone in their possession. I would urge that person to come forward. I want to reassure him or her that they are not in any trouble with the police. All we are interested in is what they know and they may well have information that is vital to this inquiry. A Facebook appeal was started and more than 48,000 people joined it and the Stone Roses put up a request for information on their website which said The Stone Roses are asking everyone who attended their show at Heaton Park on Friday the June the 29th to help in the search for Christopher Brani, 22, who has gone missing after attending the show. Please look at his photo and try to think. Did you see him at the concert or afterwards? Do you know if he used the park and ride facility? Did you see him talking to anyone? The police were also following leads that suggested Chris may have used the park and ride facility at Bowley Park, Haywood Old Road, Middleton. There were dozens of coaches in the car park with destinations all over the country, so they were thinking that perhaps Chris had left of his own accord. Some of the appeals also reached out to Chris himself, saying for him to contact the police if he was able to. As we've discussed many, many times before, adults can and are allowed to leave without telling anyone if they want to. The police also asked people to search outhouses or on top of small buildings for any sign of Chris, just in case he had tried to shelter there at night or in case he'd injured himself. His friends and family organised a rally on the Thursday in Manchester's Piccadilly Gardens, which was attended by hundreds of people. But sadly, ten days after he was last seen, the police were called to reports of a body that had been found in the canal and it was confirmed as being the body of Chris. This was on the 9th of July. An autopsy was done by Dr Naomi Carter, who was unable to confirm the cause of death, and Joanne Kearsley, deputy coroner, recorded an open verdict at the inquest. They were unable to confirm how Chris had died, but they said they felt the numerous injuries he had suffered were likely to have been from being in the water, as they were not accompanied by any bruising, and that lack of bruising would be common with post-mortem injuries. Obviously, it's really, really sad what's happened. Kind of knew it was going to happen. Mm. But I don't know, there's a part of me that just... I don't know if I'm not taking it seriously, but with the coroner, are they just... It's like, oh, I can't be bothered to investigate properly, so I'm just going to go for an open verdict. Does that happen? I mean, I can't imagine that they could do that because their job is so important. And I honestly think that they... It was 10 days after he was last seen, so his body would have been in the water for a length of time. I don't think that they would just say there's no confirmation of cause of death for the like for the sake of it. But that is if that was my family member, I can understand why his family is so worried because that doesn't answer anything. The police used CCTV to piece together Chris's last movements and they realized that he had probably died the night he went missing, which would make a bit more sense as to why his body didn't have any clues after 10 days in the water. Chris was first seen arriving by tram at Shudhill Metrolink station and going to retrieve a bag containing shoes that he'd left there. Chris's friend Mark explained this to the police. 
the guys had bought plimsolls because they wanted to wear welly boots to the gig, but they didn't think that they'd be allowed into any bars if they went out afterwards. So they bought plimsolls and left them there to change into if they wanted to. So was this an open air gig? Was it outside? It was in a park, Hence yeah. the wellies, mm-hmm. okay. So... Other CCTV footage showed Chris walking through the city centre, close to bars that he often drank at with his friends, onto St Mary's Parsonage, down the side of Century Buildings, and onto a riverside walkway. A witness whose flat overlooked the walkway later told police that he saw a man matching Chris's description sitting there the night that Chris disappeared. The walkway has a four-foot railing along it, and senior investigating officer Deborah Oakes said she did not believe that Chris appeared to be injured or drunk on any of the CCTV footage of him in the city centre. There were three groups of people that the police wanted to check with, as they may have been witnesses to what happened to Chris. A pair of women in their late teens to early 20s, three men aged between 18 and 25, a few minutes after those first two women, and several hours later, another pair of women. But from what I could see, these were not people that the police thought were responsible. I also couldn't see anywhere whether or not they'd come forward. The inquest into Chris's death heard that he had been treated for anxiety two years before, but his dad, Stuart, said the idea that his son could have intentionally harmed himself had not even entered his consciousness, even for a second. Dr Naomi Carter, who carried out the post-mortem, said that the walkway is lined with a very high rail. He must have climbed over it or been thrown over it into the river that was 40 feet below. Detective Inspector Deborah Oakes ruled out any third-party involvement, as there was only one way in and one way out of the alleyway, and nobody went in or out for many hours before or after Chris. Now, this really reminded me of the case of Corey McKeague, which I know you were so interested in when he went missing. When he went missing, police were able to prove it was impossible for anyone to leave the area without being caught on CCTV, and that's why the main assumption is that Corrie was in a bin that was collected, either dead or alive. But with Chris Brownie's case, I've not been able to ascertain whether the police actually looked into it officially that there was no other way to get in or out. I suppose it's a difficult one because we really don't know if a crime has been committed there either, but mm-hmm. we have done some of these kind of unsolved deaths. And I think I'd kind of, you know, sadly, um, it's not really had as much attention over the last six months or so. So I'd kind of forgotten about it. And that's really sad, actually, to Corey. Yeah. But um, yeah, I would love to cover that case. And I think, you know, anything where, uh, you know, people can kind of talk about it and, you know, somebody might listen that might have some information, uh, it's worth doing. But it is a really interesting case. And yeah, you know, the theory is that he's just been out, got drunk, uh, fallen asleep and, you know, kind of ended up in a, a bin lorry somehow. So whether he'd kind of slept in a wheelie bin or we just don't know. But yeah, it's a really, really bizarre case, one where there's a, a number of theories. So yeah, it does remind me of this a little bit i also thought that it was a bit sad that they brought up something where he'd been treated for anxiety two years before i felt like whilst that is his medical history and perhaps it wasn't brought up in a specific way perhaps it just had to be mentioned i felt like that was almost making something out of nothing and for his dad to then have to say there was that doesn't even cross my mind i felt really sad for his family with that with the inquest it would it would come up because they're having to rule out suicide, so they would need to look to see if there's any history of depression, which there isn't because anxiety isn't depression, although it can be similar, but um, they need to look in detail at his mental health 
prior to this happening to see if it could have been suicide. So I do understand it. But yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's like, you know, hopefully he got through that anxiety that he was suffering from and it's still come back to haunt him. And yes, it was valid to discuss it as inquest and that is a public forum. But how sad that that's what has come to light and, you know, partly he will be remembered for that and people will know that about him that shouldn't know that. Stephen Swanton was known as a loving person who was always smiling. He had a hug for anyone and enjoyed spending time with his brother's children. Sometimes he would take them to school. He has been described as having restless energy, which he channeled into cleaning and decorating. He lived at the family home and was 33 years old at the time of his disappearance. Tragically for his mother, Stephen disappeared after a row which culminated in her kicking him out of the house. It sounds like this would happen quite often and his mum quoted as, was quoted as saying, usually he would have come home the day after or a couple of days after. He would always come home, which I thought was really sad. That is really sad. And we sometimes talk about this like you would have this guilt for something you can't help and it's you shouldn't feel guilty, but you would and that must be horrific to that was the last she saw of him. It was mid-September 2015 when Mrs Swanton asked Stephen to leave the house and packed up his belongings in bags. She left them on the patio table. He moved the bags into the shed but never retrieved them. He did sneak back into the house during the evening but he ran off when he was confronted leaving behind all his personal belongings and his clothes. He fled through the lounge window topless when he was confronted by his mum and his stepdad. Stephen was officially reported missing on September the 17th, 2015. He was seen a few times, at least four official sightings have been reported. So he was seen outside Bolton Market the following Saturday by a distant relative who had to decline his invitation to join him for a drink in the pub. He was seen on CCTV outside Game in Victoria Square in Bolton Town Centre sometime in October. A neighbour noticed him out and about in Chorley Old Road in Halliwell, but the date for this isn't known, and he was spotted in the company of a mystery man with blonde hair outside the Royal Hotel pub in Vernon Street, near to the family home, and again, the date for this isn't known. Stephen's body was found on the 15th of December in the water in a canal near Media City in Salford. He was identified on Friday, January 15th, so a month later. He was found with a broken nose, two broken teeth and a possible neck injury. Injuries that could be explained by his movement through the water and the police continued to investigate but were not really treating his death as murder. His family, however, did not agree. His mum said that her son was a strong swimmer and his injuries suggested that he had been beaten up before his death. She said... I don't think he has fallen in. He was a strong swimmer. He had two broken teeth and a broken nose. And I was asked by the coroner, did he have any problem with his neck? I think it is murder. I think he has been dumped there. Stephen's sister, Vicky, said, Everybody is very shocked. We couldn't understand at first. We kept saying it couldn't be him in Manchester. We find it very unusual for him to be found where he's been found and everything that's happened. Stephen was found with heroin in his bloodstream and was apparently full of different drugs as well, such as cocaine. The inquest opened on December the 30th and the coroner reached an open conclusion. His body had been found in the canal on December the 16th. His date of death was recorded as that same date and the cause of death was drowning. Afterwards, his mum said, I am not satisfied. There's still unanswered questions. He had heroin in his bloodstream, which we never knew about before. He was full of drugs, different drugs, cocaine as well. 
The inquest failed to shed light on Stephen's final weeks, so his family didn't know who he had been with and where he'd been taking drugs or who he'd bought them from. And they highlighted unknowns such as how had he paid for the drugs since he had no money, who had he been staying with and where had he been staying. Whilst the injuries may have been purely from being in the water, his family still believed that he may have come to some harm and their assumption was that he'd been assaulted and dumped in the water. And whilst I do appreciate that you would have injuries from being in the water, those injuries are... That's what you would have if you'd had a beating. Yeah, yeah, you can't... A broken nose, broken teeth. There's no current in a canal, so he's not going to get dragged through the waterway at any great speed. Through rocks or something, yeah. No, no, not at all. David Plunkett disappeared from an event at the Daytona racetrack in Trafford Park on Saturday, April the 17th, 2012. He was 21 years old at the time, and on the walk home that night, he called his parents... The phone call was made at around 1.20am, but David didn't speak, and the call was silent, save for the sounds of him walking along. Whether this call was made on purpose or not, it's not known, so it could have been like a pocket dial and his parents were listening, but they could just hear him walking. But what happened next is absolutely chilling. Whilst his mother, Anne, listened to the sounds of her son walking, probably assuming that he pocket dialed her, there was suddenly a number of loud screams to be heard. According to Anne, in her own words, ghastly screaming. His father, Michael, said something had terrified him. He was on the phone, but our son could not speak to us. And that's not because he was drunk. The screaming and howling was so unearthly. We just thought it had to be something. Anne tearfully called 999 immediately. But David was pulled out of the canal as he had died. Can you imagine, as a parent, having to listen to that? And I think you would almost... It's like a car crash, you can't not look. And they would have been really concerned, obviously, for his safety. So even when she just probably initially thought it's just pocket dialed, she's probably thought, well, I'm thinking about the time now. I know he's been out, so I'm a bit concerned. So I'll I'll carry on listening. And then literally her worst nightmares have come true. Yeah, and that is just something out of a horror story, isn't it? To hear screams at the end of the phone and in the middle of the night, you're then calling the police because you know that your son was on the other end of that line. Former Detective Chief Superintendent Tony Blockley questioned whether or not David could have been lured or chased, adding that his parents would surely have heard a splash from the mobile phone, um, which had been found at the scene, had he fallen into the water. He said, It could have been an accident, but by the same token it could have been a crime. So even he isn't certain, and it shows that it's this ambiguity. The phone could have fallen before he fell in the water and there was a splash. Greater Manchester Police said that there was no evidence of foul play and the official investigation into David's death concluded that it was an accident. His parents still suspect otherwise. On Tuesday the 10th of April 2018, so this is very recent, an office worker was cycling home along the canal path near to the Old Trafford Stadium. It was about 10pm on a Tuesday night when the 34-year-old unnamed man was attacked and was knocked into the canal. He spoke to the Sunday Times about his ordeal with the complete psychopath, his words, who he described as a white male aged between 20 and 40 of average height with a normal looking hairstyle, wearing a black jacket. That could be anybody. 
what an ordinary person description. But I think, I think this is what's most disturbing for me. This is somebody that survived the pusher, potentially. If the pusher's out there, this is a guy that has survived the pusher. And yeah, I mean, that's just horrific to think there's this guy, you know, just pushing people into the canal for kicks to kill them and getting away with it and enjoying it. Mark, it gets worse. So um, he explained, it was 10pm, I was working the late shift and coming back home late. I saw a man out of the corner of my eye and he swung his arm and it caught me on my neck. So the guy fell, still on his bike, into the canal and his legs became tangled in his bicycle while he was below the water. He said that he almost drowned, but he managed to get above water and try and get a grip on the side of the canal, which was all mossy and slippery but he managed to get hold of something on the side. This was when the man kicked his hands away and stomped on him so that he would lose his grip so he'd fall back into the canal. Honestly, I think that was that was the bit that I was just like, Jesus, you'd, just, you'd not forget that moment, would you? And almost, you could almost, almost think it's an accident that someone's being a twat shoves you, but that shows malicious intent. He said... That's when he kicked my hands away, which made me slip back under the water again. He added, he was a complete psychopath. Even when I went in, he tried to stop me getting out. He didn't try to steal anything. When I came back up, he was gone. I saw him running away. I managed to get out of the canal. And luckily this guy did survive. But obviously the attacker was just nowhere to be seen from then on. And his phone was damaged from the water. So he made his way to a pure gym in Stretford to call the police. Speaking to the paper, he said that he'd asked the police about the Manchester pusher legend and he said of the police, they were well aware of the stories. He also said, I definitely feel like I'm lucky to be alive. I could easily have drowned because of what he did. The police made the decision to treat the incident as assault rather than attempted murder and are not linking it to any of the deaths in the canals. I think kicking someone's hands back to me and i know i'm not a police officer but that to me screams with intent pushing somebody into a canal when they're on their bike so they're going into the water on their bike they're fully clothed it's 10 o'clock at night i think this was kind of like winter time as well and then he's stopping the guy getting out of the canal and some canals are literally six eight foot deep so how can they say that is not attempted murder yeah this was april time so it's gonna be cold so that brings me to the end of part one of my possible manchester canal pusher episodes um i quite liked my little title of manchester canal pusher fact or fiction i felt like a journalist you are a journalist not um no that's that's really good yeah i think um yeah that kind of gives us a really nice flavor of what's been happening there and some of the theories potentially you know is it psychopath is it accidents have we got a lazy coroner i'm definitely not saying that is the case um but yeah i think that's really really interesting I'm, i'm glad you've chosen to cover it So next week, we'll look at some more cases of the men who have met their end at some time or place along the stretch of water. And we will also look at the reactions that have been noted by the press and on social media, as well as the police and their official statements. It would be great to include some of our listeners' thoughts as well. So I'm going to post a thread on our Facebook page. If you would like your comments or thoughts included next week's episode... The thread will be open throughout the day on Saturday and I'll put a comment at the bottom once we're closing it and I'll close it off from comments. So that'll be Saturday after the episode is released. If you'd like to join us, that'll be on Facebook. And Mark, you can have a little think as well and we'll have your thoughts on the episode as well at the end. 
So whether you believe in this being a serial killer or whether you think that these are unlinked, very sad deaths, the reality is still that this is a dangerous place for young men at night. And we're also going to look in a bit more detail about what is being done to protect people in the area and what people can do to protect themselves. And to me, and on behalf of their loved ones who still want proper answers, I felt like it was really important for us to remember their names. So thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you'll join us for part two next week and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.